Um, now today we are going to be starting a new series, a new sermon series from the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, today we're starting with a passage that Tawny just read. Now if you have a Bible, please turn there. If not, there's also Bibles on the back tables and those are for you. You can get up and grab one of those now if you don't have one. But we're starting this sermon series on Revelation 2 and 3. Last week, we ended our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And you may think, well, the Gospels, that's where we have the words of Jesus. That's where we see the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament is the acts of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus carried out through the life of the church. But actually, in Revelation, we see the words of Jesus. We get this epilogue, this encouragement and challenge to the church. And so if, you're, if you look at your Bible, you probably have red letters on your Bible signifying that these are words from Jesus. And so we're looking at, uh, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at these letters that Jesus wrote to the churches um, in this one region of the world at that time. And so we're going to be calling this Dear Church, Letters from Jesus. Uh, let me pray as we dive into God's Word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you will speak to us today. Lord, we need your word. We need you to come and remind us of what is true and remind us of what, of what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray that the meditations of our hearts here together and my words this morning will be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I've got a question for you. Have you ever wondered how people fall in love? Have you ever asked yourself that question, how did this happen? I don't mean like, what did she see in him? I mean, like in general, how do people fall in love? How did it happen? Um, I'm, as a pastor, I do marriage counseling and I do engagement counseling. And one of the things I always ask a couple when they come into my office is, tell me the story of us. How did you guys get together? How did you fall in love? What is your story of these two people together. And I've heard a lot of stories. And so when I think of that question, how do people fall in love, I can definitively tell you that I have no idea. <laughs> um, I don't understand it. And, uh, and I've never heard an answer to that question that just made me think, oh, this is how people fall in love. It's a mystery sometimes. How do people fall in love? How do you fall in love if you've been in love before? I once asked that question to a guy who was getting married in his 30s, uh, to a woman in her 30s, and I said, um, how did you guys get together? What's the story of us? How did, how did you fall in love? And he said, well, my fiance had a list. Maybe you know about these lists. Maybe you've had a list or you have one now. She had a list of things that she wanted in her dream husband, and she said she was waiting on God to give her that list for the dream husband to show up. And she actually had 39 things on that list. And he met all 39 of them. And so um, some of these things were important. I want a Christian man. Some of these things were less important. She said, I want a man of the arts. And this man was an actor. He was a man of the arts. She said, I want a man who's bilingual. This man was bilingual. He grew up in Ecuador. And then she said she wanted a man who had veiny hands. <laughs> and as he said it, he holds up his hands, and they were veiny. And he says, I even have veiny hands. 
So God gave her her list, her dream husband. She was waiting for years for a veiny-handed man to come along and sweep her off her feet. And he did. But you know, there's one thing that I never hear people put on their list, and it's the most important thing. I never hear anyone say, I want someone who loves me. But you know, that's the most important thing on the list. You can have all 39 things, but if you don't have love, then the marriage, is, it's, there's not going to be a relationship, right? So love is the most important thing, and it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand how people fall in love, but I think sometimes it's even harder to understand how people stay in love. You know, we ask that question. See, in the beginning, the sparks are flying. It's this high-octane romance. You're doing things that you've never done before, saying things that you've never said before. Um, I remember writing poetry and sending it in the mail um, because you're just in the moment. You're infatuated. But then after time, what's common is that things cool down. You get married you go on the honeymoon, and it's not long before you start saying the honeymoon's over. This is a lot harder than I expected. In fact, my career's in the way, my social life is in the way, and I've got these hobbies that I want to do. And then maybe you have kids, and you're thinking, you know, I look across at this person at the breakfast table, and I see a roommate. Not a lover, not even a friend, just a roommate, just someone who goes through the details of life together and occupies the same house. The honeymoon's over. And at this point, some people leave and they start the whole process over again, right? Again and again and again, and and we've seen that sometimes. Um, But sometimes other people just settle in and they say, I'm going to be the best roommate that I can be. And they settle into what a Christian counselor named Dan Allender calls the dark compromise. Now, This is not a sermon about marriage, believe it or not. This is actually a sermon about Jesus and his bride. And when I look through the scriptures, I don't ever see Jesus, I don't ever see God saying, I want a roommate. I want a really good roommate. No, he says, I want a bride. He is the lover of our souls. And when I see the Bible, I see a lot of vows because he calls the church, the bride of Christ. And what that means is that he desires to love us and for us to love him in return, and it pleases him to love us and have our compassion, our companionship in return. And in this letter that we begin with today, we see Jesus is telling the story of us. He's writing this letter to his bride, and he's telling the story of how they met, and he's telling them to remember Remember the story. He looks at where they've been, he looks at where they are now, and he looks at where they're going and where he wants them to go. And so that, that's what we have in this, um, in this letter today. And we start with verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. See, we have to realize he is writing a letter to real people in a real place. He is writing to the church at Ephesus. 
Now, the church in Ephesus was a trophy wife. This was a dream church. Um, this church in the, in the city of Ephesus, which is in um, Asia Minor, um, this church was planted by the Apostle Paul. It was pastored by Timothy, whom we have letters to in the New Testament. Legend has it that the Apostle John was an elder here, and even that Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent her last years at the church of Ephesus. This is a dream church. This had all of the, the Christian celebrities of the day um, at this church. Um, but there's some things we need to know about the city of Ephesus. Um, as I mentioned, it's in Asia, but this was one of the biggest cities of, of the time in the Roman Empire, the fourth biggest city. It had a quarter of a million people at the time that, that Jesus is writing this letter to the church there. It was a major commercial hub, but it was famous, not just for business, but it was famous because there was the temple to the goddess Artemis looming over the city up on a hill. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of fertility. And so she was represented by two things. She was represented many times with the image of a deer, but other times she was represented by this image, this, this statue, this stone statue that was in the temple of, of Artemis, this, this deity that had many breasts because she was the, the goddess of fertility. And so you can see in those two images why you would go to Artemis. They went to Artemis because they wanted to get fed the deer and the fertility. They wanted to get something out of Artemis. And when they wanted something out of Artemis, they would go to the temple. And this temple that was up on the hill outside of the city was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was many times the size of the Parthenon. It was, had 127 columns around it. In fact, the temple of Artemis was the biggest building on earth at the time. And the way that you would worship Artemis when you went to this temple is that there were thousands of priests and priestesses there in the temple. And so when people would go to the temple of Artemis, which is called the Artemision, they would go there and they would sleep with one of the prostitutes, one of the priests or the priestesses to worship Artemis in order to get food, to get children, to get what they needed. And all that is to say is that Ephesus was a dark city. So when Jesus is telling the, the church there the story of us, he's writing to people from a dark city with a dark path. He's talking to people who may have gone to that temple, who may have been priests of Artemis at one time. In fact, we get the story of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19. You can read that later if you want, but it's one of the most dramatic conversion stories of the churches in the New Testament. What we find there is that um, Paul goes to Ephesus to preach the gospel, and he's doing signs and wonders and miracles, and that was really compelling to the Ephesians, to the people there. And so they started to believe in the gospel, and they started to worship Jesus. And in fact, all of these magicians saw the signs and wonders that Paul was doing, and they confessed the name of Jesus, and they converted, converted, they repented, and they started worshiping Jesus instead of Artemis. And in, this, in Acts 19, we see that they brought all of their magic books together. And that, that's not Harry Potter for any former Baptist out there. Um, they're books of magic. They're books of wickedness. They brought them together, and they burned them in the middle of the city. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that the value of the books 
was 50,000 pieces of silver, which in today's money would be about $6 million. They were literally trading the words of evil and darkness and death for the words of life, for the words made flesh, for Jesus. And the gospel spread. But this was actually a threat to Artemis. And their ex-lover got jealous. And this man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made little statues of that goddess Artemis to sell to people to worship, he said, my business is starting to suffer. Because these Christians who worship this man Jesus of Nazareth are saying that, that this little statue is not even a god. They're saying that Artemis is not even a god, that Artemis is an idol. And so he says, you can burn your books, you can throw your money away all you want, but once you start messing with my paycheck, we have a problem. And so he incited a riot against the Christians in Ephesus, and he got all of the other workers, the, the silversmiths and the other trade unions of people who were making idols, and he says, we've got to throw these people out of town because we are known for our temple, and they are disrespecting the temple and Artemis herself. And so he incited this riot, and they run to the theater, and, and this, this, it's this violent, bloodthirsty scene, and they start shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And it goes on for two hours, and they're dragging the companions of Paul into the theater to, to presumably kill them, to start a riot against the Christians. And even Paul is, is trying to go to the and his friends are physically holding him back. And finally, the mayor of the town comes out and says, hey, nothing will conquer Artemis. Artemis is, is going to be okay. But if you keep rioting, then Rome, whom we're all afraid of, Rome is going to come in here and charge us with rioting. And they're going to come with a sword. And so this, the riot dispels. Those are the conditions of the church in Ephesus. That's the story of us. They were in a dark place with cultural and economic pressure, pressures. Idolatry and immortality was rampant. And yet, the church grew. And they persevered under the pressure. And even when they had internal pressures coming into the church to try to lead them astray, they persevered and they protected sound doctrine. And the church grew there. Why am I telling you all of this? Not because I think it's a fascinating story and it's a history lesson, but because it is the background for these verses here in Revelation. See, in verses 2 and 3, when Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for name's sake. He's telling them the story. He's telling them their story. He's saying, remember where you came from. Remember the works that you used to do. Remember the works that you started to do once you received the gospel. Remember the love that you had for me in the beginning. And he even tells them in verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you're reading that, you're like me, you're thinking, who are the Nicolaitans and why do we hate them? Um, and we don't, we don't really know exactly what they taught, but chances are it had to do with idolatry and, and immorality. And a lot of people believe, a lot of scholars believe, 
that they may have even been teaching people that the way to worship Jesus was to go to the temple of Artemis and sit with a priest or a priestess there and worship Jesus at the temple of Artemis. And yet the Ephesians resisted. They kept their doctrine pure. We see this in the letter of, to Timothy, how he's warning them of, of these other doctrines, these false apostles. And, and they endured. They kept their doctrine pure. But then we get to verse 4. And verse 4 says, but, and whenever you're like in a job um, performance review and somebody gives you like the good news first, and then they say, but, or however I will say, you know that like, okay, your heart skips a beat, something, here comes the bad news. In verse 4, he says, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. See, what he's telling the church is that their love had grown cold. The honeymoon was over. They had kept their doctrine pure. They'd fought off the heretics. They had good theology. They even hated bad theology. They probably even memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But they had abandoned their love. They had abandoned their love for God. See, they had a great objective experience of God. They could give you the right answers. But they had a poor subjective experience of God. Heavy on the head, light on the heart. They were pretty good roommates. But God doesn't want a roommate. He wants a bride. Does any of this sound familiar to you? You don't have to be an academic to let your heart grow cold. You don't have to be a thinker on the Myers-Briggs personality diagnostic to let your love grow cold. In fact, this is just kind of the nature of relationships. If you don't give a relationship attention, if you don't work to, to stir your affections for, this per- for another person, then you grow distant and cold. Relationships atrophy under neglect. And what happens is you start trading love for law. Have you ever found yourself doing this? The love is gone, the honeymoon is over, so then you start hearing yourself try to justify your good works. Try to justify yourself in the relationship, and you start thinking about all the things you've done. And you think, well, I'm the one that puts food on the table around here. Maybe you think, look, look at all I do for these people. Look at all the things I've done. Look at the dishes that I've cleaned. Look at the laundry that I've done. Or maybe, maybe you start to hear yourself saying, you know what, I could have married that doctor, and I didn't. And if I had, I would have been rich. I would have been going on vacations, but instead I'm stuck here with you. And, um, and you should appreciate me because of that. That's what law looks like in our relationships. But do you find yourself doing that to your relationship with God? And you feel like the, the love has grown cold? Do you start looking at your library and your calendar and saying, look at all these books I've read. Look at how much I know about God. Do you say, look at my calendar, look how much I've served you. Just think of all the money I'd have if I hadn't given it away for year after year. Think of all the time I would have if I, 
if I weren't going to community groups and serving at the church and serving meals at the park. Look at all these things that I've done. But God doesn't want a good roommate. He wants a bride. He wants not just our our heads and our hands, but he wants our hearts. He wants to be loved by us. So what do we do? What do we do when the love has grown cold? What do we do when the honeymoon is over? Well, Jesus tells us two things. And they're right there in verse 5. He says to remember and repent. And we have to understand a few things about that word remember. The first is that you probably don't have to read too far between the lines to realize that remembering is not just a cognitive exercise. If it were, we'd be right back where we started, right? Just tell me something to you know, get my doctrine right. If I just think of something, then, then God will be happy with me. But, but that would assume that the opposite of remembering is just simply to forget. But it's not just a cognitive exercise. Remembering is an action. See, it's not like a grocery list when you're like, did you remember the salsa? It's more like in my house when you remember leftovers. You know, you remember, I've got leftover pizza in the fridge. That is never a purely cognitive action in my house. Um, that always means that I'm getting up out of my seat and going to the fridge and getting the pizza. Um, but it's not just that remembering is an action or has actions that accompany it. Um, you might hear that word remember and think, that sounds very familiar. In fact, that, that command to remember is one of the most repeated commands throughout the Bible. Um, and that's because remember is a covenantal word. It's not just to, to not forget It's to renew a covenant. You see it in the Old Testament used this way. You see it in Psalm 77. This is very common in the Old Testament. The psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder on your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. It's not just a cognitive thing. It's a holistic, whole life thing. To remember the works of the Lord means I'm going to meditate on them. I'm going to think, I'm going to ponder on them. I'm going to try to live faithfully out in my, you know, live this out in my life faithfully. But like, um, but because it's a covenantal word, that means that it's, it's like a marriage vow, right? And marriage vows work both ways. And so when we see this word, remember, we also see it being used of God in the Old Testament. In Psalm 106, he says it this way, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. God doesn't forget. God doesn't have a lapse of memory. He's calling upon God to act, to act in a manner that's faithful to the vows that God has made to him. He's saying, God, you've made a covenant with me to save me. Remember me. Save me. Redeem me. Show favor. And of course, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, we see him instituting the Lord's Supper in which he says to do this in remembrance of me. Not just to jog our memories, but to renew our covenant, to renew our vows with him. So how does remembering affect our love? I think it's like this. I think it's when a couple comes to me and they're stuck. And like I said earlier, I say, tell me the story of us. And when they start to tell the story of how they fell in love, When they start to tell the story of what they initially saw in this person, 
about the romance, when they remember the early dates, when they remember their wedding, their honeymoon, it actually stirs their affections for one another. It actually causes them to put their feet, put, put themselves um, back in their own shoes and to walk through those vows, to walk through those promises, to walk through those moments where the romance was fiery, when law had not yet overtaken their relationship. And what they see is that they encounter grace for one another. And I think when we do this in our relationship with God, it works the same way. And so when, when Jesus tells the church to remember where they had come from, I think he wants us to do the same, to remember how God saved us, to remember the ways that he has provided for us throughout the years, to remember the love that we had for him and how much we grew in the beginning and different periods of our life where we were growing in love for him. He's saying, remember those, go back and renew the covenant, stoke the flames, stir your affections for me. I don't know exactly how this works, but I do know that when I hear people telling their stories, it does something in me. And I think we don't just need to tell our own story. We need to tell one another's story. We need to listen. And we need to tell the story of us collectively. Uh, this is why we have testimonies in our liturgy from time to time to hear how God is at work in people. Because those stories draw us in and they give us hope and they remind us that we too can be faithful. And they cause us to love God because we see him for who he is. Every month, the elders of this church get together and pray for you. And recently, I was at this prayer meeting, and um, it was at the Berg's house. And someone commented, you know, how many meetings throughout the years have been in this living room? And they started to tell the stories of how they've seen God at work in the lives of people in this church. Some stories were sad that, that at this moment have not seen the redemption that we've prayed for. Other stories were stories of rescue and stories of redemption and seeing how God has, has redeemed and captivated the hearts of men and women here in Santa Barbara and how they've gone out and, and, and taken the gospel to other places from here. And what happened in the telling of those stories is that I actually started to think about my own story. I started to remember the way God had redeemed me when I was 16 years old and I found a Bible and he started to give me a hunger for his word and he ministered to me. And I remembered how the times when I was broken and I had nothing but Jesus, how much my heart longed for him. And I remember the times where I had, had nothing and he provided for me. And, and when we tell those stories, when we remember those stories, it does something inside us. I think what it does is that it, it helps us to fall in love with our Redeemer because we can't tell the story of us without telling the story of grace. When we go back to the works that we had at the beginning, we remember that those works were not ours. We can't say, I did this and I did this and I found Jesus. No, what we tell is we remember how he found us and he was gracious to us. And so when we tell the stories, we encounter grace, and we have to admit that we brought nothing to the marriage. And this is good news, because when we tell the stories, when we remember the love that we had at the beginning, when we remember the way God has been at work in us, 
We, not, we see his grace, we see his heart, and we see his love for us. And here's what we realize, God had a list too. He had a list for his dream, his trophy wife. What did God want in his bride? There's only one thing on that list. He wanted a repentant sinner. And that is good news for us because that's all that we bring to the table. It's like the hymn says, the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's what's on his list. That's what he wants in a bride. And when we go back and we tell our own stories, we realize we didn't bring anything to the table. He chose us. He found us. He wooed us. And when we look back, we see his love, not our own. And I think that actually tells us what repentance is like. When he says, remember and repent, I think sometimes we hear that word repent and we think just in behavioral ways. I need to stop doing something bad. But here in this passage, he's actually saying you need to start doing something good. You need to return to the love. You need to love God like you did in the beginning. And that's why we confess the things that we've done and the things that we left, we've left undone. But I think repentance is more than just behavioral. It's relational. And so when we repent, we come back to the one who loves us. You know, my kids are young and moody, and I would love it if I came home every day and they just ran to the door and, like, welcomed me home. Um, but they rarely do that. The one time that they do run to me, you know when that is? It's when I have food. <laughs> and it's not just when I have food. It's when I'm the only one that has food. They, the, the locks are on the fridge. They can't get in. Daddy's got his morning toast. I'm going to crawl up in his lap. They want to get fed. But there's another time when they run to me, and that is when they're hurt, when they're bruised and broken, and they run in tears to me. And I think repentance is like that. It's when we say, I've tried and failed. I can't fix this. I can't fix this problem in me. God, let me come back to you and sit in your lap and heal me and comfort me and care for me and fix this problem. We're like little kids who tied a knot in our shoelaces and everything we've done to, to try to untie it has just made it tighter until we come back to our Father and say, here, I repent. Help me. Save me. And so if this whole time you've been thinking, gosh, my, my love has grown cold. I do feel that way. What am I supposed to do? Is there a book I can read? Is there a podcast I can listen to? Is there a retreat I can go on? What can I do to make God love me more? I've got my good theology. I've got my good works. But, but I know my heart needs, needs love. I know my affections need to be stirred. What can I do to become that dream bride that, that God wants me to be. If that's what you're thinking, then maybe you've missed the point. Remember, the point is that, that God doesn't want a roommate. He wants a bride. And the point of this passage, you have to realize, this is not a Dear John letter. This is a come home letter. Between the verses of this passage, we have to realize something about who God is. 
and what kind of husband Jesus is to his bride. See, this is not about us to just like get our affections in order. What we see in this, in this passage is a passionate lover. That God wants to love us. He wants you. He wants your company. He wants your heart. And he's not satisfied with, left, with less than that. And so if you're just asking, what can I do to get God off my back so that I don't feel guilty anymore, then you're asking the wrong question. He'll only be a roommate at best and a, and a taskmaster at worst. But if you see that he's a lover who's pursuing you, who wants you, then that actually makes you love him more. When you see that he has put his affections on you, that stirs your affections for him. When you see grace, you can't help but love the one who gives you grace. But here's the thing about this letter. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with a warning. It ends with a promise. Because Jesus says, I I know where you've been. I know where you are now. But let me show you where you can go. In verse 7, he says this, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this was particularly meaningful for the Ephesians because what, what I didn't tell you about that temple of Artemis is that in the middle there was a garden, and in the middle of the garden there was a tree. And people have called it the tree of life. And so when, when God says, I will, to the one who conquers, what he's saying is, hey, Artemis is no threat to me. That big building, that temple is no match for the temple that's in heaven, and the slain lamb is on the throne in that temple. And he has gone to the tree of the cross so that he can bring you to the tree of life. And, and whatever you're looking for in Artemis will not be found. What you're actually looking for can only be found in me and in my kingdom. And the whole book of Revelation is going somewhere. It's going to this end. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we see this city of God descending from heaven and, be, and, and resting on earth. And in the city, there's a garden in the middle of the city. In the middle of the garden, there's a tree, and it's called the tree of life. And he tells us that it's for the healing of the nations. And nothing that has cursed humanity will be in that garden or will be in that city. And we will be healed. And all the duplicity of our hearts will be gone and we'll have singular affection for our Savior. And on that day, do you know what it's called? It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. He says, look at where you're going. If you can abide, if you can conquer, then you will be united with the one who conquers, the slain lamb. And on that day when he returns, we will celebrate the marriage feast. And there will be no more sin. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more Artemis. There'll be nothing else to compete with your love. He says, this is my promise to you. I will bring you there. Remember the promise. Remember where you're going and do not lose hope. Um, A friend of mine recently was talking to a young girl who was preparing to take her first communion. And he asked this question that people ask all the time to see if, if you have faith. He said, if you died tonight and went to heaven and you're standing before God at the gates of heaven 
And he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? And her eyes got like really big and, and she started, her lips started to quiver and she said, but you promised, you promised to let me in. That's what God is saying in this passage. Look to my promises. Look to my love for you in the beginning. Tell the story. Remember the love that you had and the love that you experienced from me in the beginning and look at where you're going. May we have faith like a child to rest in his promises. Amen.